Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. I would like to welcome our guest for today's episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness podcast. His name is Ulysses Butch Slaughter, and he's an artist, an alchemist, and an alpha black who uses the power of forgiving to persistently pursue radical, relentless reconciliation through all of his extraordinary life journeys. For more than four decades, Ulysses has courageously answered the call to illuminate dark and difficult human relationships with unwavering determination to synthesize polarities and amplify potent possibilities. As a native of Chicago, Illinois, Ulysses is a veteran of the U.S. Navy and resides in Medea, Pennsylvania. Author of three books, director of various short films, and curator of countless critical community forums, Ulysses has appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Network, The Dr. Phil Show. He is a 2013 recipient of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Community Leadership Award, and he's a graduate of Lincoln University, Pennsylvania. His fourth book, Come Black Home, White Woman, will be released in summer 2022. To stay in touch with his work, connect with him at ulyssesbutchslaughter.com or email ulysses at ulyssesbutchslaughter.com. I want to welcome you to today's podcast. Thank you for being here. It is an absolute pleasure to be here with you, sister. Um, as I'm listening to you read that introduction, I'm going, wow. Okay. I, I guess I'm in agreement with who I am. That's that's pretty good. Okay. Well, I'm happy to hear it. You know, it is your bio, but I would like to actually start with that. If you could um, tell us, uh, give us some clarity on what is an alchemist to you and what is an alpha black? Let's start with the alchemist part. An alchemist for me is somebody who takes shit and turns it into gold. That's that's the best way to put it. You, you're going to take some shit and you're going to turn it into some gold. And uh, that's what I've been doing all my life. I've been taking shit and turning it into gold. I, I take very difficult situations and I turn it into a product of, uh, of beauty, a process of beauty. And I think that that's what I've been called in this world to do. Uh, so going into the, the answer of what is an alpha black, that is what an alpha black is. An alpha black is a black person who is at, that some people would like to put it, the top of the food chain. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that that 
that I eat everything beneath me. What I do mean, though, is that I try to elevate everything. And being an alpha black also means that I am looking toward a God. So I am not the total uh, author of, of everything. I, I have a place, uh, a power that I'm looking at, and I'm referencing that God power in everything that I do. So my alpha is in relation to the God power. It's not something that is, you know, just coming up out of me. It's something that's coming through me. And that's what makes me an alpha black. So if I'm hearing that correctly, it's like holding yourself in a stance of, um, of on top. Like I am a part of the, the larger, uh, wisdom on there's a wisdom on my life and i am at the i'm at the top of that and within that there is a top beyond me which is guidance and then below that my work is informed or your work is informed through you as that channel if that's what i'm hearing right absolutely so i i, I love the term channel uh and i'll talk about this perhaps because the channel I've been, I've been saying the prayer of St. Francis all of my life. And anybody who's listening and knows the prayer of St. Francis knows that it starts off, make me a channel of your peace. So it is a call from me to the God, and I am requesting that you make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring your love. So make me a channel. Use me as you will to do the alpha stuff. I am willing, ready to do the stuff that the alpha has put on me and I will be your alpha. You understand what I'm saying? And so I, I really uh, do. It's, it's, it's landing in a way that, that offers a sense of strength and a mm -hmm. sense of humility in this simultaneous place. Absolutely. That's a beautiful way of putting it because uh, submission is crucial here. Uh, this is, these, these are not easy journeys and uh, faith is crucial here. So to, to bow and say, damn, this is hurting so bad, but this is clearly what you want me to do. Um, I bow to the alpha. I am yours. Do with me what you will. I submit. And sometimes uh, that submission the endurance in the, that pose, people say this a lot of times in yoga, when you have to hold a particular pose and after a while you start to shake. And I'm talking to a Kundalini here. So you know what I'm talking about when we're talking about hitting a pose and uh, having to hold that pose for as long as the instructor tells you to hold it. As long for me, God is telling me to hold that pose. And I'm like, I, I want to come up out of this stance. I want to come up out of this so bad. He's like, ah, not yet. Hold that pose. And so um, it's important for, for me to submit. And, and I, I've been submitting a lot <laughs> throughout my life. I'm hearing you give that yoga analogy, but you're really referencing life. You're saying- I am hold that pose, meaning stay in that mess because you need to work that one out. And I want listeners to really have a context of um, the types of um, challenges that you've been asked to be stayed in. So if you could give us a little um, history of 
of the background and reconciliation with your father and your mother, as well as kind mm-hmm. of the work you've done with Move and the Philadelphia, the, the, the city of Philadelphia. Just some context, because you are an expert in reconciliation, and reconciliation is not easy. There, this is untangling stuff that doesn't want to be detangled, doesn't have possibility of detanglement. And yet, what I hear you saying is, even in the mess that we're dished, you have created a container called you that has distilled a lot of that mess. And I know that, but I'd like listeners to hear a little bit about that. Well, I'll start with what you referenced, my mother and my father. That is the basis for everything I do. Going back to June 25th, 1978, in the city of Chicago, which is where I'm from, uh, I woke up that morning to the sound of two gunshots. And my father, Ulysses Sr., had shot and killed my mother, Clarice. And that is June 25th, 1978. So that's not something that I asked for. It was something that I was called into as a child. And as I sit here now thinking about this, talking to you, take your time. I'm reminded of the, uh, like the bewilderment. I mean, to see my mother laying in the middle of the floor with two gunshots in her head and my father saying, I had to do it. She was going to leave me. Uh, That's, you know, when I think about that, I think, what a, what a strange, strange thing to see. What a strange thing to experience. That's my mother and that's my father. And these are the two people who brought me into this world. And what, what what am I going to do with this? I, you know, I'm 12 years old. I'm just, I, I, I remember still, I just could not believe it. Uh, <clears throat> and within two, three months, I was enrolled into a Catholic school, a school called St. Albies in Chicago. And Right away, I was hearing the prayer of St. Francis. It's something that was said so frequently. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring you love. Where there is injury, your pardon, Lord. And where there's doubt, true faith in you. I had a lot of doubt. (laughs) Uh, Just two, three months after my mother was killed, I had a lot of doubt. I would be the chief witness against my father in court at the age of 13, 12, 13 years old. So I spent a lot of time in court as a seventh grader uh, having to explain what I saw, what I heard. Um, It was tough. So my baptism into reconciliation, the fire of reconciliation, started with my parents. And 
uh, right away, God is saying, submit. This is what you have to deal with. And that was a struggle. I mean, for, for decades, that was a struggle trying to, uh, make sense out of that. And I mean, the, the years that they kind of flew by, I wound up becoming a father of six wonderful children and, uh, was still in many ways that 12 year old boy who had not resolved this thing with his parents. And, uh, ultimately I decided that I need to resolve this. And, uh, <clears throat> and did, and I'll, I'll get to that. I, I ultimately resolved it just 18 months uh, before my father passed away. We reconnected, and uh, people would always ask me, "What? Why would you want to talk to him? Why would you want to deal with him? How can you do that?" And my mother's name is Clarice. Clarice means clarity, light, and clear. And I tell people that. This is how my mother would expect for me to be. This wasn't just about, you know, saying, I forgive you for killing my mother. It ain't that simple. It ain't, it's just not that simple. It's, it's deeper than that. And everybody talks about what they would or would not do. And I always tell people, there's no one size fits all forgiving. So I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Thank God there's no one size fits all forgiving because most people would fail. Forgiving is so flexible. Uh, it is so individual that there's an opportunity to heal on so many different sets of terms that uh, all of us have a blueprint for forgiving and reconciliation. And that's crucial. And we could take it or leave it, but I decided to take it and it, uh, it has changed my life uh, considerably. My father died a, uh, a year ago, coming up on the anniversary, May 14th of his 10-year uh, passing. So, yeah, and I was if, able to if, do that. If I remember your story correctly, you and him did live reconciliation, correct? And that was a part of what was you went on the Dr. Phil show for. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. and then some of your previous books is specifically about this. So if listeners want to really understand the heart of, of this um, these several decades of Ulysses' life and how he really alchemized a lot of um, this pain. And, and you want to see his beautiful mother, it's his Facebook profile photo. So, um, you know, he very much weaves his story of, of various decades into every moment of his life. And it's one of the things I really appreciate you about you. Um, you've carried on the work of reconciliation in many other community development arenas, um, including with the city of Philadelphia. And um, if you want to speak a little bit to the the work you did with MOVE without going too much into it all, I'd, I'd love, again, listeners to hear the types of projects, for lack of a better word, that seem impossible to reconcile because the sides will never see eye to eye. And, and that's right. a part of what this whole pot podcast is about, is that whiteness is not an easy conversation to dive into because it's seeping in every aspect of existence. And yet it also doesn't mean that we don't get a bark, embark on the conversations because it's essentially what I've seen you and your life represent um, as a master facilitator and, and reconciliation specialist. So... Speak to us about MOVE. Let the listeners know what MOVE is. If you don't know, you should know. 
And it's one of those things that like the Tulsa, uh, the Tulsa race riot, uh, the Tulsa massacre, because uh, it really wasn't a riot. It was a massacre. It's one of those Absolutely. things that, that just gets lost so easily in history. But the move bombing, the Philadelphia move bombing was just that. Back in 1985, May 13th, 1985. We're coming up on that anniversary, okay. too. Pause 1985, he said. Not 1885, folks. 1985, the city of Philadelphia bombed a household, and they were called the MOVE organization or a family called MOVE. Go ahead. Yeah, and so they they, they dropped a bomb on uh, the city of Philadelphia, uh, an officer named Frank Powell, who I had an opportunity to talk with as part of the reconciliation process, um, dropped a C4 bomb on a row home in West Philadelphia at 6221 Osage Avenue. And there were five children. There were six children, actually, in the house and seven adults. One child and one adult escaped. The rest of them uh, were burned to death or shot to death in that house. In a period of 90 minutes, there were 10,000 rounds fired off into that house by the police. More than 500 police officers, all kinds of firefighters surrounded this house. And all they were supposed to be doing was serving a, a, a warrant for an arrest. And the people who were being arrested were only being arrested from minor charges. So it's more than I can explain right now, but it was such a traumatic. And trauma is like, like that's not even the right word for this madness. It was it was urban warfare. And some people will say it was a shootout. But another friend of mine says, no, it was just a shoot in because the people on the inside didn't have a chance. And no matter what they had against all these police officers, didn't have a chance. So as Guru Deshaun said, look it up. You got to look up the move bombing. But back in 19, I'm sorry, back in 2018, a friend of mine who knows my commitment to reconciliation came to me and asked me if I would consider holding conversations with members of the MOVE family, Mike Africa Jr. in particular, and the mayor, the former mayor, W. Wilson Good Sr., uh, they wanted to talk and see what they could do to make this matter more uh, manageable, isn't the word, but they wanted to bring not even closure, because this is the other thing I tell people, this is never really about closure. It's about when I say reconciliation, reconciliation, my definition is that it's the reestablishment of coherent equilibrium in a relationship, the reestablishment of coherent equilibrium in a relationship. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to be happy. And I think people get this twisted when it comes to reconciliation. Reconciliation is not about everybody being happy. Anybody who knows anything about the Catholic Church uh, uh, sacrament of confessional reconciliation knows that you go in, you say some stuff, and then you got some penance to do. So it's not that everybody's going to be happy. What we're trying to do is we're trying to make it so that people can be more human. That's what reconciliation is about, be better human beings in connection with one another. Mm. So from September 2018 to May 2020, to May 13th, 2020, on the 35th anniversary of the MOVE bombing, I and a number of other people had worked so hard that we ultimately got the city of Philadelphia to apologize for this bombing that took place. It was 35 years earlier, so it took 35 years for people to get this thing to a place where 
at least an apology was being made. And people would say, well, they cured all those people. What good is an apology? I always tell people that an apology is the beginning of other possibilities. It's not the end. So an acknowledgement is crucial. When you've done something wrong, you got to acknowledge it. Mm. You acknowledge it. You don't act like you didn't do anything wrong. Acknowledge Mm. it. And the way to acknowledge it is to apologize. You acknowledge it, you apologize, and then maybe there's some action that comes after that. And they've talked about different actions that they would like to implement as a result of the apology. But you don't start the, you don't, you can't go into action. And this is the same thing I did with my father. You can apologize. You you could go into action, but you got to say why you're going into action. You acknowledge, you apologize, and then you go into action. And so, um, the move situation was one of my um, deepest submissions to God because Guru Nishan, I had to read and talk to people. And this wasn't just about the city of Philadelphia in the move family. There were hundreds of thousands of people who were impacted. It was like a reverberation. When I talk about trauma, that bomb that was dropped on that block reverberated across the country. When people look at that, they go, wait a minute, what did I just see? Did he just drop a bomb on that house? Did, are they shooting in there? They know children are in there, shooting in there. And then you'll hear this when you when you start to look into this. The police chief and the fire chief let the fire burn when they realized that the house was on fire. They didn't even put the fire out. They just let it burn. So it consumed 61 houses, two whole blocks, 61 houses. And more than 250 people were homeless. This was horrible. So me having to be in connection with that and try to organize conversations and ultimately come up with an apology for this, this was tough stuff. It's not the kind of thing that, may, that you, it's not the kind of thing that you can go to sleep easy on. And so sleep was tough for me during that period of time. Well, I, I want to just pause on that and say that so much of what you said, um, I feel like is really re- relevant for the reconciliation that white people, people in white bodies have to be doing within ourselves. And mm-hmm. it's a part of what's inspired me to start this podcast. And so I want to get right into that in the sense that one cannot do something or change something if one hasn't even acknowledged it exists. Absolutely. And so this idea of well-meaning white people, we all know there's the racist out there. There's the one who's the obvious bigot, you know, the obvious face of the Nazi or the racist. And that's not what this podcast is about. We all know that there's lines and there's people that are standing on one side of it. When I'm far more concerned, even though I am concerned about that group of people, I'm more concerned about the sea of white people that are well-meaning, that think they're doing the right thing. And they don't know that what they're doing is not only offensive, it's violent. It's emotionally violent. It's psychologically violent. But because they don't yet have perspective outside of their own worldview. And I say they, even though I'm a white person, because I grew up in very much an outside context of mainstream America. So I didn't grow up with a lot of kind of mainstream American ideology, um, but it doesn't excuse me being in a white body. And so a part of breaking apart whiteness is seeing all the ways that our own personal narrative blinds us from seeing the impact, not the intention, 
of us, but the impact of our words, our thoughts, and we can't do anything to change our unconscious whiteness until we can A, acknowledge it and then start letting it unravel within us. You have a plethora of stories here. Um, growing up in Chicago, I could imagine as a young black boy, quite a, quite a story with your parents, but lots of led up to that. You're both yes. your mom and your dad had a tremendous history to end up in that predicament, which then put you in that predicament. City right. of Chicago, we know is well known as the most segregated city. I, I live in Chicago. Um, and then we could go on the Navy being a father. I could just, you know, so I'm just going to stop and just say, where do you want to begin with this? Because yeah. Well, let me pick up kind of where I left off and that was with the move situation. And I'll say this, um, Many people say that what happened to the Moo family, and I agree with this, what happened on Osage Avenue would have never happened in a white neighborhood, okay? There's, there's no way in the world that the police would have, uh, with the support of the FBI, dropped a C-4 bomb in a populated white neighborhood in Philadelphia. I know people who say, well, they, it happened in Waco. It happened at Ruby Ridge. These are two entirely different things. Waco was an isolated off the, the beaten path. And so was Ruby Ridge off the beaten path. This is a neighborhood where people lived row houses that are next to one another. Philadelphia's row houses are right next to one another. So you mean to extract this particular group of people, you are going to drop a bomb on their house and then let the fire burn. And again, you go on and you see, you, you find a couple of these aerial shots of what happened after that. That would never happen in a white neighborhood. So I'll start there because sometimes people need a, a, a visual to understand how cruel, uh, well-meaning whites even can be when it comes to something like this. They, they don't stop and go, yeah, you're right. So that's an extreme version of what we experience on a daily basis on this side of the white-black dynamic. Uh, you talk about growing up, uh, and you, you, you referenced Chicago. I remember when I was growing up, busing was a big thing when I was in kindergarten. We were talking about getting Black children better education, and one of the ways that people were talking about doing that was put them on buses and take them to better, take them to better schools. That scared the shit out of me. I can still remember that to this day. And you, as one who talks a lot about trauma and even complex PTSD, you understand that these things stay in our bodies. These memories stay in my body. So every time I interact with somebody, the new stuff is uh, stimulates the old stuff. And since the stuff has not changed, I always wind up coming back to the same place sometimes. It's like, damn, I, I love being Black, but this shit ain't easy. And in a world where the, the filter, my uh, filter has to, my, my filters or my lenses are prescribed by white folks who are trying to tell me how to be human. This is tough stuff. It's like what you want to do is be more like us. You, you want to be as little like you as possible. And they don't even hear themselves saying this a lot of times. You want to be more human. Uh, I think I may have shared with you this one uh, 
this one uh, article called Whiteness by a guy named Richard Dyer. I think I sent that to you a while ago. It's called The Matter of Whiteness. And one of the things that he says in this article is, there is nothing more power than being, there's nothing more powerful than being able to define who's human and who's not. And we don't think that deeply, but just because we don't think and, and, and ruminate around this stuff doesn't mean that we don't feel it. And Black folks know in their bodies that they are constantly under pressure by white society. White people don't, I just can't imagine that white people have to go around thinking, hey, I'm white. No, they, they don't think about that. It's a foregone conclusion that not only am I white, I don't have to think about that, but I'm human. I was in the store this morning thinking about preparing for this uh, podcast and uh, checking out got my stuff in bags. It was great to walk out. And some people, some whites might say, well, I, I feel that too sometimes. I'd love to do a study on this matter, but as, as soon as I, as a black man, approach the <laughs> the door, I'm always thinking that damn thing is going to go off and it's going to trigger that I've stolen something and I'm going to be in this predicament that I got to explain what's in my bags or something like that. These are little silly ass things for some people, but for Many black folks, and I, I know this because I'm in conversations like this with young people uh, in intergenerational conversations like this on a regular basis. These are things that still kind of stick with us. They they stick with us. And if you can't even go in a damn store and walk out the store and not feel the pain of blackness, what kind of life are you living on a, on a daily basis? And these are things that well-meaning white folks don't have to think about. I just got one other thing that that I that I want to point out here. Um, I'm, I'm just going to reference this just a little bit here. I've been having this really difficult struggle with my wife, who's white. We're just a really, really bad place. And a number of people have asked and have been in conversations about what is going on there. And I know that people, whites, have said to blacks that this is just about a married couple. It's just about a man and a woman. That is so untrue. White people have said that. Yes. But no black people have said that. No black people have said okay, that. Okay, so let's re-say that. So white people have projected to you that this is about a white about a husband and a wife issue. Not that it's a white woman and a black man issue. It's a husband-wife. And that's a white yes. people lens on that. But Absolutely. black people in that same in your same circle have never contexted as just a man and a, a woman issue. They absolutely no. understand the white and black uh, um, aspect to it almost first, almost first before the, and, and I don't know if that's correct, but I'm guessing. No, I'm telling you it's true. And as much as uh, people like to go into this silly ass stuff about colorblindness, it's just impossible. And it's okay. It's okay. I don't think that we should be trying to go colorblind. Let's acknowledge what's real. Let's acknowledge the space that we live in. And for someone to look at me and go, well, you know, all couples have that challenge. You don't know the challenge. And I, I say this very specifically about black men and white women. You don't know the challenges of a couple 
until you are a black man or a white woman in a relationship with a black man or a white woman. It's not the same even with black women and white men because of the way that black men have been uh, demonized, have been uh, made ugly in a particular kind of way. You, you, just, you just don't know what it's like to be in that dynamic unless you're in that dynamic. It's hard to explain. And well-meaning white folks will go, you know, it's just, this is, this is just the, these are the issues that a married couple has. Now you don't, you don't. You Another don't phrase in, in relation to that would be something like, oh, but that, that's not about race. That's just about marriage. That's another way to say that same thing. Right. It's absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Well-meaning white people. Right. Not seeing the con the racialized context. And I want to go back to what you just said um, about not seeing color. Well-meaning white people will will often say, I don't see your color. I just see you as a human. And what what we don't understand in that phrase is a how deeply offensive that is. Because if you're not seeing the color context of what this human who is different shade than you, darker, and the historical nature of what that is supposed to reference, mean, and give access to, then to say you don't see that means you're not actually seeing this human being in front of you. Right. You're not seeing the actual real everyday experiences that this person has to navigate and go into a Walgreens and worry about beeping the beeper, even if it was just a beeper mistake of Walgreens. You don't have to, as a white person, worry about why that's going off and what's going to happen in the interrogation afterward. You can just flash your, hey, I didn't do anything, flash our unconscious whiteness and be able to brush out that door a person in a black body or in a different shade of body can't do that. And I've I've never heard of a scenario like that, but it lands in my body to say, yeah, I've never once thought about when that beeper goes off by mistake, what would be the repercussions? Because there Mm -hmm. haven't been repercussions Mm -hmm. for me being in the body I'm in. And, and so as we, hear white folks, my sons were having this conversation the other day as we hear folks talk, white folks talking about Black Lives Matters. It's easy to put the t-shirt on. It's easy to put down the lawn sign. It's easy to show up even at a rally. But you go back to where you came from as a well-meaning white person when it's all said and done. And it is, uh, I've never been a fan of the phrase Black Lives Matter because it's a foregone conclusion. And if we have to say it, then they actually don't matter. I've never liked that phrase. I kind of get it, but I've never liked that phrase that you have to endorse my humanness with a t-shirt, with a march. Still, I mean, we're still talking about the same shit. Come on. Come on. When it, it, Somebody would ask in a naive way, when does it end? And the answer in an adult way is it looks like never. It just looks like never from my standpoint, because there is a continuity, historical continuity of passing uh, ideas and, and, and energy uh, uh, and, and, and physical separation and segregation. This shit has just continued. And it's difficult when you hear people dismiss a reality that I know I see 
Uh, Not just that you see, see you live, you breathe, you experience, you wearily move through your entire lived life through that context. Right. And the seeing, I, I want to make a point that the seeing is important. And it's not just about the seeing with the eyes. It is about the, uh, it, it's like the transmission, the communication between me and the rest of the world, the, the observation and yeah, the, the feeling and the energy. And it's just kind of like, ooh, I love myself. I want to be very clear about that. But I have to love myself in such a protective way sometimes that I get confused as to whether or not that is, what kind of love is that if all I'm doing is kind of hiding myself and protecting myself and being careful? Mm. It's it, There's something constrained about that kind of love when you are so uh, mindful of protecting your body color. Mm. That that That's tough that's tough love, you know, and some would say it's necessary. And like I said, so if it's necessary, when does it end? Does it end? It's just, it's just, this just the way of this earth, the way of this, this world. Uh, I, I just think that it, it's, it's easy for people to think that they get it because they can repeat something that I said. It's easy for well-meaning white folks to go, oh, that's what you mean. Okay, theoretically speaking, yeah, I know you understand the English language, but you don't get this black body. You don't, you don't get what it's like for me. And it, this shit is just so stereotypic, but it's so true. You don't, you don't get the difference between me seeing the police and you seeing the police. When I see the police, I see chalk marks. When you see the police, you think officer friendly and it's not, it ain't the same reality. And it makes a big difference in even how I raise children. You know, it makes a big difference for me as a father, it makes a big difference for me as a friend. And it's like, it's like walking around with a, a ball and chain. I'm constantly carrying this thing around uh, and having to, at some point, even uh, get used to the weight of it. And I shouldn't have to get used to the weight of this. Nobody should. I want to pause you right there and say this reminds me of the flood of kind of media attention to what I feel Black and Indigenous and Hispanic communities have known for centuries definitely decades and have been dealing with, but the flood of media attention on particular deaths, whether it's George Floyd or, you know, Breonna Taylor, just Ahmaud Arbery, all the ones. But mm -hmm. what I want to bring attention to is what you're talking about. Walking down the street, you know, uh, playing with a toy gun in, in the, in the playground, um, sleeping in your own house, mm -hmm. um, you know, driving a car parked on the side of the road, um, on the street corner, like being in the black body, no matter what activity is being done is automatically a perceived threat. And, and this is just white people and not all white people, but some white people have woken up to being like, Oh my God, Oh my God, if you are a parent and you're raising black children, you have to give them the talk. You have to say, this is 
what you do, don't do, do. And I want, I want you to illuminate that a little more. What I'm highlighting for a moment is just taking what you said and kind of the flood of awakening awareness for white people to even realize like, oh, oh, you mean Oklahoma massacre? Like just Black Wall Street just got illuminated, right? Um, Emmett Till just got illuminated. We're talking about things that have happened 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago plus Mm -hmm. that Black communities cultured communities have known, have grieved, continue to grieve, hold these memories in the roots of their body systems. And therefore, what you're sharing is moving around in your body can feel like a ball and chain because there is no, no matter how much faith, surrender, submission, trust, all the things that historically communities that have been slaughtered have called on Mm. the unseen help from anywhere togetherness because how else do you move through atrocity Mm -hmm. but well-meaning white people look at some of these things and it's kind of like oh well i just learned about the such and such and what can i do to help and be an ally and it's it's a troubling question because it reminds me of what you were saying earlier one wants to jump to doing something before feeling the real weight and dis-ease dis that has to show up in our personal experience before an action can even be taken. Yes, yeah. I want to throw this out because it, it, it is a great example of the difference in the possibilities, the ever-present possibilities, the Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, situation. I have a a 16-year-old who ran track, um, cross-country, excuse me, he ran cross-country. And my wife has a, he's now mm, 20. Anyway, uh, I remember when her son used to get up and occasionally go for a run. And then when we moved into this other home together, my son would occasionally get up and go for a run. And the so her son is white from a previous marriage. White from and, a previous marriage. And your you. and son, son is black, is black from a previous marriage to a black yes. woman. Yes. Context. Yes. Just letting yes. everybody Thank know. You so much. So the, the so the the difference between them running is a Maud Arbery. That's the difference. The the fact that they could be running in the same neighborhood and have different outcomes, it's a Maud Arbery. And when I saw that disgusting. And they're just some, some, some circumstances, some situations, you just don't have words for them. That a boy, a young man could be running for whatever reason, running because he wants to run through a neighborhood and somebody would challenge him running through a neighborhood or immediately decide he's done something wrong and become a vigilante, the entitlement to become a vigilante, the entitlement to become the law. I am white and I represent the law of this land. The difference between my black boy running and my wife's white boy running is a Maud Aubrey. And so it's it it sometimes it, it it pisses me off because it's like somebody will say, well, that's the, you know. That's an exception. That doesn't always happen. You need to understand that all we needed was one Emmett Till. 
all we needed was a one Amara Berry. It, it scares the shit out of all of us. And all it's not one exception. It ain't. It's not. It ain't. It's, it, ain't. it ain't. It ain't. But it the ain't. fact it that that's it. even said is bothersome, yes. Yes. and it shows yes. the privilege and exceptionalism and entitlement of, of white bodies. It, it's, dismissive. it's dismissive, and it's it's not paying attention to to media control of that we're getting fed what we, we only know what we've been allowed to know. And it also says, um, again, it's it's dismissive, yes, but it's also not understanding that it makes black boys not want to run. It makes black boys not want to run. I don't, you know, who who wants to run after seeing that? You 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 do want to run, but maybe I should walk through here, or maybe I shouldn't go over there. So it 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 puts a psychological, emotional constraint around a lot of black boys that might want to run. Does it do that to the white boy? No, it doesn't do that to the white boy. The white boys are not impacted by Ahmaud Arbery. Yes. That's something else. That ain't got nothing to do with me. I have mm-hmm. the freedom to run wherever I want to run. I can mm-hmm. run I can run at, at night. I can run in the day. Somebody sees me running. If you see a black boy running during the evening, it ain't because, or early in the morning, it ain't because he got up and had the initiative to run early in the morning because that's what he wants to do. Now, he must be running from something or running to something to do something wrong. It's it's dark out here. People are sickening in their lack of understanding. And I think part of the lack of understanding is the lack of care, because if you don't actually have to live in that space, you can make the choice as to whether or not you care. Well-meaning people can make the choice as to whether or not they want to care. That's a big damn deal here. Let me make a choice of whether or not I want to care. If I'm going to give that my attention, Mm. I just, I just, just saying that right now, I almost want to repeat it just so that I can hear it again. You have the choice of whether or not you care. And some people say, of course, you should have the choice of whether or not you care. No, I don't think that you should. I think I think that if not when measuring humanity, not when measuring. And and this, I think, gives us to a crux of 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 a center is one of the things you said earlier speaks to just this, that every, you know, that, that the white body, and this is how resmamenicum language is that the white body is the standard supreme body in which all other humanity is compared. Mm -hmm. And whether or not we acknowledge that as an underlying operating system of whiteness determines whether or not we're going to get the rest of this conversation. And It's a part of what you said earlier is if everything that I'm compared to you as a black man is compared to a standard that your body will never meet because you're the body, the black body has been deemed as subhuman, not yet human. There's a historical nature to that of actually marketing and long, long written texts around the black body not being a human and all Mm -hmm. the comparisons to animals and monkeys and gorillas and black bodies being put in zoos um, for white entertainment and white bodies being painted black for white entertainment. 
And it goes back to this unconscious thinking that runs our current society, which is the white body is the standard or supreme body that everything else is compared to. And all others are disposable. I need to throw that in there. All others are disposable. We can take them or leave them. You know, Mm. we we, we can if we if we need them for entertainment purposes, cool. If we need them for labor, cool. If we need them uh, for sex, cool. You know, but they're disposable in the end. We could just kind of get rid of them. And that's not how whites look at themselves. They're not disposable. They are essential. They are the essential. They are the only ones that are essential. People need to get to this faster. They need Mm. to get to this. Now, you referenced my book, uh, my forthcoming book called Come Black Home, White Woman. And I just want to emphasize something here. I think that the coming black home, not come back home, the coming black home has to do with the return to a particular kind of consciousness that has been lost. And that, that, that particular consciousness, that black human consciousness has been lost because there's, a, there's the need for reconciliation that uh, some people are, have been fighting against. And I think that there's a perpetual fight uh, for white women and black men to stay away from one another because what it means is a kind of integration that people just don't want to see. They're afraid of this integration. It means they're having sex. Oh no. And and they're creating different types of babies. And people think that this is silly, but there have been some books written about this. Even to this day, there are books that are being written about this. There, There are things that are being done about this. It's a serious, serious sickness. And people need to take this not just academically seriously, not just intellectually seriously. They need to take this serious from a uh, human destruction standpoint. We are going to kill ourselves, all of us, in this space where the well-meaning whites, Dr. King talked a lot about this. He said that one of his concerns was that the liberal, he's given up on a liberal. He said, I just... Everybody wants to invoke Dr. King. White folks want to invoke Dr. King because he wasn't Malcolm X. He wasn't the violent one. He said, I've gotten to the point where I just don't believe that they're going to come around to being what's necessary and who's necessary to make this world what this world can be. So even Dr. King was like, I'm kind of done with this. We don't hear those quotes by Dr. King. We we hear only the, the big... I have a dream. We only hear the big one that amplifies the white agenda. And makes people feel more comfortable. And this is about, as you know, uncomfortable. Mm. This is about, let's, we, we need to get uncomfortable because it's in the uncomfortable spaces where we grow. That's mm. the uncomfortable spaces where we can see the, 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 the differences and the contradictions and we can work to reconcile the contradictions. But if you don't want to look at the contradictions, you're not going to be able to reconcile them. So, um, when you say well-meaning white people, we need a term for those more radical, vulnerable white folks that are like submitting. We talked about, I talked about submission from the beginning. We need some white folks that are going to submit to look, take with me and do with me as you will. You know what I'm saying? Just take I am your me. vessel. <laughs> I am your vessel, right? And, and... It, it means that I am going to sacrifice 
a lot of my beliefs, and I'm going to be challenged on these on a regular basis. This is mm-hmm. part of the other thing that needs to happen. We need a challenge on a regular basis. It needs to be instituted as classes, as courses, as social opportunities. It needs to be challenged on a regular basis, not just like, you know, as, as you and I've talked about before, I, I checked that box off or I, I made a pledge or I made a donation. I did the one time thing as opposed to making this my lifestyle. We need white folks that are willing to make uh, a lifestyle. And this doesn't mean that you're abandoning or betraying whiteness. What it means is that you recognize that humanity, your humanity is tied to the reconciliation with your other brothers and sisters. That I'm going to say this, and I hope people understand what I'm saying, is that there are white folks that have looked at others as subhuman. That very perspective is subhuman. That very thinking that we're human and you're not, that is the subhuman. That is where the problem is. It's not with the people that you look at and go, oh, look at them. It's your thinking that has created this challenge. And that is where the conversation begins because white is problematic in that regard. So I want to, listeners, I want to speak to you on this and that what I hear Ulysses talking about is the, the need for a new white community to grow from this level of work. And whiteness in and of itself is a cloak of unconsciousness that breeds in our bone marrow because this is so historical that even if you hold a present day identity as woke, attentive, in for the cause, maybe you married a black person or have a black kid or, or, you know, have done all these things. None of those things make you an anti-racist because That's what we're learning about white privilege is that we can't see ourselves in the sea of ourselves. And therefore, we do things that we don't know are deeply violating and not just present day violating, but historically violating, say things and the perspective we might have. So in your mind of yourself, you might not think, oh, I I think black people are sub half human. Of course, you don't think that if you, if you held an identity of yourself of that, you would already be changing it. That's what makes it unconscious. That's what makes it historical is These are a part of the marinade that growing up white allowed us. We grew up in a marinade that didn't make us see all of the ways that it wasn't safe for another human being to walk down the street, to sit on a bus, to marry the person they love, to protect their children, to be, you know, to all the things that are basic alienable rights of being human, to breathe in your body, to feel safe in your body, to grow your hair the way you want to grow it, whatever it is. And to now step into a present day reality of self with a a concept, you have a self-concept. And are you willing as a white person to realize my self-concept could be in a huge gap to where 
of, of who I actually am, right? The way that's the underlying play of the way I'm relating with people. And that's what makes it a, makes us a well-meaning white person is when you don't know what you're doing as offensive because you haven't taken the time to study, to pay attention, to interact with people who are different and from different cultures than you, then you don't know. But it doesn't make it okay just that you don't know. Because it's still not okay. It's still offensive. It's still violation. It's still not seeing people in their full humanity. So a part of the goal of this podcast is if you don't know, that's one thing. It's one thing not to know. But once you know, you start digging into that dirt and you realize, wow, there are a lot of things in the history that have built up my ability to stand on the earth today that I am not aware of that affects the lens that I see the world. There's this thing where people say, are you trying to shame me? Are you trying to shame them? No, nobody's trying to shame anybody. You know, shame is that's, that's, that's on you. You know, if you feel shame, that's really on the individual. What we're saying is, Anybody who denies that white folks, generally speaking, all around the world, and I've heard the great Bobby Wright, uh, a psychiatrist out of Chicago in the 70s, Bobby Wright would say, white people, no matter where you go around the world, run the world. White people. How did it get that way? How did it get that white folks run the world? We're looking at even a war right now. Ukraine, Russia, the United States. This is all about white people. White people are dominating. This is white people dominating the world. They dominate the wars. They they dominate everything. They dominate everything. It is undeniable. And so we talk about apology and acknowledgement. That needs to be acknowledged. White people go, yeah, you know what? White people run the world. White people. And if you're running the world, into the fucking ground, excuse me. If 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 you seeing that white people start these wars, white people create these weapons, white people run the economy, white people, white people, white people, white people. If you can't acknowledge that, I don't know where to go with you, but you, you got to start by first acknowledging that white people run the world. Oh, but then there's Oprah Winfrey. What the hell are oh, you talking stop. about? Oh, my God. That just hurts. Stop I want to pause you and say white people run the world. What I really want to add into that is we're talking about an imperialist agenda. We're yes, talking we about are. imperialism and we're talking about historical colonialism and yes, how those those concepts historically continue to run the world. And they are rooted in the supremacy of whiteness. You know, colonialism yes. and imperialism is all about some people are subhuman. I just started listening to a book. We're going to talk a lot more about this on future episodes, but it's called The Darker Nations. Mm. And it's by a gentleman by the name of Vijay Prashad. And it's all about the people's history of the third world and even how our concept of the first word in the third world are right. fabricated concepts run through an imperialistic agenda. And that yeah. the whole thing that Ulysses is bringing up right now is that colonial powers have never really given up their colonial entities. And so they just 
morphed into a different way of controlling um, and extracting labor for free or for pennies so that we get to keep on with our consumer society. And so these things run deep and it's complex and the untanglement is complex. But what Ulysses just said, if you can't yet acknowledge the whiteness that runs, the imperialistic white agenda that's still running and operating things every single day and the narratives that we're getting, that itself is a problem and there will be no growth going forward. I agree. And I, I, I think about that as you're talking, top to bottom, top to bottom from the, the highest imperialistic emperor, whatever that might be, all the way down to the functionaries in many of these smaller communities. White people run the world and with the intent of keeping it that way. So to acknowledge it and then to ask the question, why? Why is it that way? It's, it's by design and desire. Design and desire. There's a, there's a desire to maintain a particular kind of power. We got to acknowledge that. Yes. And if there's an intent to maintain a particular kind of power, it means there's an intent to maintain a particular kind of powerlessness. These two things go hand in hand. This stuff is just not rocket science, as they say. Mm. Even the beauty. You know, when we look at the way that people have said what is beautiful, folks, think about the number of ways that, that white women and white men have shown up in front of us. Sometimes I'm in the gym and they got all these damn TVs across the front of the the uh, the, the wall. And by and large, Guru Nishan, all you see is white folks, white folks blaring out at you. The newscasters are white. And of course, they, you'll get those shows where they're trying to do the multicultural thing. They try to, you know, by and large, white, white, white. Interpretations of the reality of the world coming out of white people, coming out of white people. And everybody's just kind of, but this is just normal, right? No, it ain't normal at all. So you mean to tell me there's only one way of seeing the world? Well, the fact of the matter is that we know that that is the idea is that Part of the agenda is to get you to think that there's only one way to see in the world. Yes. That is part of this game. And if you can't acknowledge that, if you can't ask a question, let's say that you can't even acknowledge it yet, then ask some questions because maybe ask. you can't acknowledge it. Get curious here. Let's, let's, let's say you can't, you aren't ready to acknowledge it. Let's get curious. And I'm not interested in people going, well, that's fake news. Now, some of this news is true and it's been true. And it's going to be true. And the fact of the matter is, by and large, white folks have for a very long time run this world and with their uh, uh, tentacles, talons in it at this point, there's no intent of giving up any power here. It's just no intent. And so well-meaning white folks need to become something other than well-meaning. They need to be well-living white folks and well living in terms of their cooperation with other people who make this a better place. And so that they are not always the ones at the front of the room. Uh, I'm not concerned with corporate representations on television. I want to be clear about that. I'm not, I could care less if you put a black one up there and they saying the same stuff that a white one would be saying. So I'm not so interested in that. What I'm interested in is getting to the, the root of this challenge of being able to deal with how 
well mean and that's an insult, quite frankly. I want I just want to say this, and I don't mean that you're insulting people, but well-meaning white, that is not a compliment. <laughs> it's just not a compliment to say well-meaning white person. A well-meaning white person is mostly empty. It's just most that's a mostly empty human being, right? And what we're trying to do is get you to rethink what it means to be well-meaning versus well-living and in connection with other people. Because meaning is a show. You just want to put on the show and make it look like, again, you can put on the Black Lives Matter shirt. You can talk about BIPOC and indigenous. You can do all of that showy stuff. But if you're not immersed in the revolution of uh, a different kind of integration, and I don't mean civil rights type of integration. I mean, even, even spiritual integration of new ideas into who you are. If you're not immersed in that, then you are more than likely contributing to the status quo or what we call the white supremacy, the white agenda. You're, you're, you're just like, what am I supposed to do about that? Everybody has a role to play here. Can I pause you? Yes. I want to ask you in your interpretation of well-meaning white person, what are some phrases or examples that come to mind for you when you hear the phraseology? Because I just heard you say well-meaning, a well-meaning white person isn't isn't a good person, right? It, it, it's right. an empty person. I heard you say that. So mm-hmm. what are examples you hear? And in your mind, you'd be like, yeah, they think they're a well-meaning white person, but I know what that means. That's emptiness. Mm-hmm. Are there mm-hmm. some that come to mind? Um, I th- The things that come to mind, mind for me when I think of well-meaning white folks are people who show up at events People who will show up like at an MLK event to do, you know, service, people who will go to uh, a lecture to get, uh, uh, what do they call those things at, at college? You'll get the credits for showing up there. So you're, it's, it's the performative thing. You're just kind of showing up to say that I was there and I can, I can, again, I can check off a box and, uh, tell people that I was there. I've got a signature. I've got a t-shirt. I got some swag that says I was there and I can walk around with this. Um, it concerns me that people don't understand that it's not necessarily and only your professional life that needs to be impacted. It's more your personal life that needs to be impacted by your change. Your, your, your change is deeper at a personal level than it is at a professional level. So if you're in your personal life, staying to yourself and doing the status quo stuff that you've always done, nothing is going to change. Socializing with people differently regularly is what makes a big difference. I'd, I'd even venture to say that, um, as we say with, with church stuff, fellowship with people And I'm not recommending that people go to church or any religious thing. I'm just saying that there's a particular kind of fellowship with other human beings, non-white human beings, that should be part of a person's daily, weekly uh, um, process. You you, want to be with people to get to know people and understand people. My sons did a conversation the other day, and they were were talking about... um, how they know as four black boys, young men, when white folks don't quite get their experience. And they're saying part of the problem is that they don't even have to get, I said this earlier, white folks don't have to get our experience and our understanding. 
but we got to get theirs. They don't have mm. to get our history, but we got to get theirs. Well we, we, we got we, we, we got to follow their curriculum and the things that they've set up for us. From an institutional standpoint, we have to. We got to follow their psychology and, 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 and their psychiatry and their social science and all that that they've prescribed for us, but they never have to do it over here. Our stuff, like Black History Month, is a month. Their stuff is 365 days a year. People have to switch that up if they don't want to just be well-meaning. They're going to have to give up some of the personality traits that, that have been grained in them. So you just had spoken about your young men, children that were, mm-hmm. that were identifying how they know when white people don't get them. And one mm-hmm. of the basis is that they came up with, if I heard you correctly, was one of the basis was even before that discussion could, could get further is, A, they don't have to. And then was there more kind of indicators of things that they knew when white people weren't getting what they were putting down? Um, The the responses to their behavior, they talk a lot about when they are in their, what I'll call their kind of black groove, that they're looked at like, what are you doing? What kind of, what kind of stuff is that? Um, It's not human. It's not normal. It's not acceptable as opposed to it's, that's a different way of being a human being. So it's a different culture. It's a different cultural it's a different expression. Culture. The different, right. the language. I mean, the language, the language the, usage, the, dance, the whatever it is, the it's movement just, of bodies, the, the taking up of, of space, the mm-hmm. touching and connectivity, the tonality, yes. all of these things. If you're yes. comparing that in relation to the standard of whiteness, yes. then the comparison could be like, you're doing it wrong. You're yes. too loud. You're fill Absolutely. in the blank. But if you look at it as an own, its own upholding richness of culture that perhaps you don't yet have the capacity or willingness to understand or appreciate, then you're put on the outside to say, hmm, now you have to get curious. If you want to understand culture, if you want to understand what these young men are talking about or how their interactions have meaning amongst each other, it would require you to have a lens that isn't comparing their black bodies or their ways of being in relation to your way of being. And looking at something as uh, right or wrong, Looking at that's not the way you do it. That's not the way you say it. Um, Taking yourself off the center. And a lot of people don't even realize that they are been trying to occupy the center. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I want you to say it again. Yeah. They think that they occupy the center and that the world revolves around them. And And this is called white centering folks. This is actual terminology. It's one of the things I really love the last couple of years is that a lot of these things have given language for white people to realize, Oh shit, I do do that. We Mm -hmm. white center ourselves all the time because we, we don't know how to not to, when you grow up doing something, when you grow up learning that you're the center of the world, And even outside of whiteness, let's talk about white imperialism. The United States, if you're growing up in the United States of America, we have been given an ideology that the world revolves around the United States. It does not. It's a form of imperialism that continues to be used as an excuse to extract bomb and and steal resources from other countries around the world in the name of, of 
white centering, United yes. States centering. So go back to the center part. I love it. So the the, the centering part, I'm gonna I'm gonna reference something that I heard on one of your shows uh, when, when when I think somebody was talking about Audrey Lord. And if I'm not mistaken, Audrey Lord says she was giving a lecture and she was saying something and there was like a white woman in the audience and the white woman mm-hmm. said something like, uh, I, I, I want to hear what you're saying, but can you say that different without the sound or the tone or the strength or something like that? And Audrey Lord, if I'm not mistaken, I hope I'm getting this right, for the most part says... She wasn't so much concerned about what I was saying or how I said it. She was concerned that what I would say would make her have to change the way she does things and that she would wind up giving up power. She would have to give up some privilege in Mm -hmm. order to accept what it is that I'm saying. You're going to have to give up something. And since people at the center don't want to give up the center, Because it's, again, it's this idea that the world revolves around us. And if I agree with you, if I compromise with you, I'm going to have to come off the center, recognize that I'm not the center or share the center with you, that we are going to be equals. And the power that I have is as your superior. That's the power that whiteness has. And well-meaning white people need to understand. I mean, this is just not that difficult. So the term cognitive dissonance comes up for me a lot. The term cognitive dissonance, where somebody is met with something that they know is a particular truth, but they just keep denying it. They deny it. They deny it. Because it's in direct opposition to an ideology that's embedded and a reality that is constructed around that ideology. So we stay in cognitive dissonance when something absolutely contradicts a different ideology that our whole world runs around. And when we're ready to start letting this get dismantled, we can come out of that cognitive dissonance, but we'll stay in that cognitive dissonance because we're not yet ready for for ourselves to be affected. We want to be We want to be helpful as long as our lives aren't disrupted enough. As long as our lives are not disrupted. And that's the other thing. That's the term that that I love. I know. I know. I'll (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll help you. Just don't mess up my life. Uh, And and it's it's an. But that's that's the statement. I'll help you as if the work that we're doing is about the helping black people. And this goes back to another really deeply rooted concept within whiteness that we can't see or feel within ourselves is this saviorism. We don't know it, but we grew up seeing, hearing, and and experiencing Black people, Indigenous people, anywhere in the world as subhuman, and therefore our efforts is to help them have a better life. No, no. What if that's not it? What if Black people don't want your help to have a better life? What if they have all the resources they need? They just need you to stop stepping on their bodies along the way to get it or stop burning their communities. The great James (laughs) Brown said something like that. He said, uh, I don't want nobody to give me nothing. Open up the door and I'll get it myself. So it's like saying, stay out of the way. Stop getting in the way of what I'm trying to do. Stop centering your feelings. Stop Stop bringing it back to you. The world is not about you, but there's so much effort that's going on for so many years and through so many channels for whites. Those who are not 
well-meaning, because there's some that are not well-meaning, but those who are not well-meaning influence those who are well-meaning. And those who are well-meaning need to understand their relationship to those who are not well-meaning. They actually work together too often than not. And they, the well-meaning ones don't want to acknowledge that. I actually am okay with what happens over there. Like if I'm talking about global domination through war, in order for the world to be what it is, people have to dominate. I'm talking about what it is, not what it should be. For it to be what it is, some group has to constantly attempt to dominate. And that domination affords a particular lifestyle for the well-meaning whites. There's a connection between the two of them. So the well-meaning ones have to acknowledge that the not-so-well-meaning ones are actually their not-so-distant brothers and sisters. And you got to cut the, you, you're really going to have to cut that off and acknowledge that, yeah, we do get the benefit of this American life because of all the stuff that we create all around the world. And even in the communities in this country, we create problems for other people so that we can live well-meaning whites so that we can live in a particular kind of way. You got to acknowledge that there's a relationship there. You can't say um, black lives matter and not understand that there are a lot of people that don't believe that that's true and that you are benefiting from the way, the ways that they are. So it, it can be, it can be, it can be complex, but what makes it, what, what demystifies it and what disentangles it is the curiosity, the humility to step into this conversation. Um, and I think there's an urgency here, Guru Mishan. There's an urgency, always an urgency. And we say we want to leave the planet better than we found it. People say that all the time. Let's leave it better than we found it. Well, let's start that work now. Let's start that work. Let's decenter ourselves. And let's get into the... The, the, the difficult or uncomfortable conversations, as you call them. And, and it, don't be afraid of that because we can live better lives. We don't have to live this way. We can live better lives. There's this assumption that if I stop doing what I'm doing, if I give up my whiteness, well, what is there? Well, let's find out. Let's find out. I can't agree more in that we don't have to have answers. We have to be willing to get curious about what is in place. And the path reveals itself, this dissolving, yep. going back to the alchemy. It is a tough reality as white people to start seeing these things. And I say this lightly because Black people and brown people hearing this, like they want to be like tough reality, whatever, you know, and I appreciate that. I want you to just, I, I hear you, I feel you, but I'm right. talking to white people because right. hard work is hard work and that's our work, but white people haven't had to deal with race, race ideology. We haven't had to deal with a lot of things that there have been centuries of black and brown communities dealing with. And that's essentially why white people have to come together in circles of whiteness to do some of these things, because some of our unraveling does not need to happen in the presence of other black and brown and indigenous and native and Mexican communities. No, no, no. Because the entanglements that living in us 
are things that we together have to detangle. And then we get to come and have better dialogues, ask better questions, be a part of this conversation, this uncomfortable conversation in relation to and in connection with Black communities and brown communities and Indigenous communities and Chinese communities and all the other ways we've been taught narratives of these other cultural communities that have put us at the center of the world. And as we start to dismantle that, as we start to break apart unconscious conditioning that runs our thinking, runs our worldview, it's what I like to call, it's the Instagram filter of your world. You know, the, the world isn't the way you see it. It's just the way you've been taught to see it. And it doesn't make it right. It just makes it all you've ever learned. It's your particular code. Um, And I can't say it enough. Don't go to your black friend and be like, I'm in for the struggle. You know, you know, it's just, it's so deeply painful. We laugh, but it's not funny. It's not. My son's just got through saying that the other day. It was just just like, you you don't, you don't, 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 don't come to me asking me what to do. Cause it, 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 it hurts me because you're trying to do something instead of being something. And we need you to be something instead of trying to do something. Hmm. Hmm. Hear that. The quote that Ulysses was bringing up, I'm going to read it real quick. This is by Audre Lorde. I speak out of direct and particular anger at an academic conference. And a white woman says, tell me how you feel, but don't say it too harshly or I cannot hear you. But is it my manner that keeps her from hearing or the threat of a message that her life may change. I I mean, that's the kind of thing that you post somewhere. And that quote, you post it somewhere and people go back and they read that over and over again because it is so profound. It's so simple on one level, but it's so profound on another level that people will go, huh? Let me read that again. My life will change, huh? What does that mean? My life will change. We are entangled. And it's not just like a sloppy entanglement. It's a tight entanglement. It's like the, these, these threads are really tight. If they were loose, you know, you'd just be able to pull them out kind of like that, like spaghetti. But this is more like a yarn thread entanglement. And when you pull them in, they're dry. They're harder to disentangle. So that quote is one that, I think you could do a whole freaking workshop around that quote right there. You really could. And, and people would have to ask themselves as individuals, how would my life change? You, you got to put yourself as an individual in that question. Cause then you can evaluate what is it that you have in you, you've tangled up so tightly that you don't want to let go of. And or what has been entangled in you. So another way to look at this from a white lens is there are things entangled in our bodies that didn't come from this time in our generation. It came mm-hmm. from many generations ago of witnessing atrocities to brown and black bodies mm-hmm. that maybe as children you had to witness and see and you weren't allowed to say something about Mm -hmm. Whatever it meant to grow up in whiteness, 
that memory, the historical memory lives entangled in your body, in your right. white body, regardless of whether you have conscious memory. So when Ulysses talks about this entangled yarn, I like to describe it a little bit more like muscles and ligaments around bones. Mm. These muscles and ligaments form as you grow. But the debris, the, the information that lives in the muscles, we know that muscles hold memory, right? The muscle memory that's entangled in the muscles and ligaments is not an easy detangle because it forms around your femur or around your elbow or around your shoulder. This is the structure in which you inhabit. So if historical memory of tone policing black bodies because they don't have the same sound as the white sound. And therefore now every time we hear black people talking, we're comparing it to the white sound. Mm -hmm. And so there is something called tone policing. It's saying, Oh, say what you're saying quieter so that I get to receive it as if that's their job to, to, to say something in a way that we get to have it. What if culturally they're saying something perfectly just fine. And that's what that quote really gets to, right? Is it's tone policing happens a lot to black people, to other cultures that are louder, boisterous, speak in different ups and downs, maybe have different personal space uh, requirements, you know, all of these things are so culturally contexted. And the fact that we haven't had language to call these things out as whiteness um, until the last few years, and, and I'm sure these this language has been here for decades, but it hasn't been accessible or pierced the veil of the, the mainstream white culture until the last two years since we saw um, George Floyd. And there's been a Kunta Kinte cloth push to wake up and, and have black wokeness everywhere. And, and this stuff bothers me as much as say the Black Lives Matter movement, even the language of POC or BIPOC. Like, I don't like that language. I don't like I don't the language either. of putting black, indigenous, either. people of color in one little group. Are you kidding? The Chinese experience, the Japanese experience, the... The, the indigenous native to Turtle Island is a very different experience and the black experience, the black people that were on Turtle Island versus the, the black people that were slave traded across the Atlantic. These are all very rich historical cultures that have been put into a category that makes whiteness supersede all of them. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. not you who did that white person listening, but your generational history has. And this is a part of the responsibility we hold in white bodies today to start saying, wow, historically, scientifically, there are ancient racialized memories living in my unconscious. This is scientifically true. And even though I don't remember them, I'm engaging them all the time. One of the ways I can engage them is by being silent, is pretending that it doesn't matter. Right. And you can go along your white, well-meaning life never having to interact with many people. Maybe you have your one or two or handful of black friends that are your token black people friends. And when you have a black person question, you go ask your black friend. These things are offensive and that's not culture. Talking to your one friend who might've grown up in a white suburb doesn't give you a lens into black culture. 
Taking a class at your university about black culture doesn't give you an experience of black culture. It might give you some learning, but that's it. Academics is different than real life. Hmm, hmm. Get very good point. When you use the term, you said generation. Uh, it, I was thinking as you were talking before you said that about the the quote that I love from Frantz Fanon. He wrote the book uh, Wretched of the Earth. He says that every generation must, out of relative obscurity, define, fulfill, or betray its mission. Every generation must, out of relative obscurity, that's relative obscurity, because it's not so obscure, it's not so clear, but it's not terribly obscure. We kind of get what's going on. But out of relative obscurity, we must define, define, fulfill, or betray our mission. What is the mission of this generation that we will betray? How will we define it? Will we fulfill it? Or are we going to betray it? And I think we're going... Uh, we, there's the possibility that we can fulfill a mission if we define it as uh, rebuilding humanity. That might sound vague for some people, but we have to rebuild humanity. We keep killing our humanity. And so these conversations about being more human, these, this, isn't, this is not just a formality. This isn't just about a class. This is about, again, a lifestyle. We have to create a culture of humanity where everybody's humanity is seen as humanity, not BIPOC, not, you know, it, 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 we're all human. And I'm not saying don't look at color because that is part of being human. What I am saying is we got to get off this thing of, White folks are centered to this whole thing. That's right. That's what we got to do. White is the pedestal. And that's what we have to break down. Like we have to bring this back down to an even playing field so we can even discuss the Mm -hmm. humanity in each Mm -hmm. of us. That Mm -hmm. conversation can't even be had until more and more white people start to dismantle the unconscious play that um, centers our whiteness and dehumanizes anybody that isn't in the standard white supreme body. And again, if you can't yet see this in yourself, it's really, really important to begin to read books. I would suggest watch some movies, some things that really pierce your own lens and lets you hear the narrative that's playing. Because I guarantee you the narrative you're hearing is a fabricated one that was fed to you. And it's really important to understand that there are fabricated narratives that perpetuate a larger story. And these narratives are happening all around us all the time. So a couple of the movies that come to mind right now that I could just throw out would be 13th. And when they, when they see us, when they see us, um, those would be two movies that if you haven't watched, let yourself fully take it all in. And do nothing afterward, but feel what's happening inside of you. Um, I would ask, what movies do you suggest? What books? What would you throw out to support well-meaning white folks on their own journey of piercing their veil? That's a good question. And actually, nothing really comes to mind for you. I'll I'll, I'll leave it with the two that you recommended. I uh, I think it was Ava DuVernay. I think that's her name, who did both of those. And um, 
I saw both of those and they're tough to watch. Even as me, they're tough to watch and, but you can't go into rejection mode of them because they're tough to watch. You don't reject it because it's tough to watch. I always tell people about reconciliation conversations. Just because it's tough doesn't mean that you don't do it. People are always looking for some kind of easy way. Can we make it less this or more this? No, how about it? It's just what it is. It's just what it is. When people see in 13th, Khalif Browder thrown in prison uh, and, and, and ultimately hangs himself because he was wrongfully charged with something picked up and, it's such a sad part of 13th. And then when you look at when they see us, the I can only imagine that the reality of what they went through was far worse than what we see in this this played out uh, this this played out uh, um, docu series or, or or series. This is horrible what happens to these boys. Young children. Absolutely. And they're children. These are children. So if, if, if our society is okay with ignoring that, I remember sitting with someone and they were saying that what bothered them was they got into the thing about the, the, that really bothered them is that the white woman had been raped and that nobody spoke to the issue of the white woman being raped. And I thought, you're missing the point here. And that's white centering once again, but go you're, ahead. You're missing, yeah, you're missing <laughs> the point here. I think, I, I don't think anybody is dismissing that. This isn't a story about her. This is a story about what happens when black boys or what can happen when black boys are blamed for harming a white woman and falsely blamed you got the wrong people, but how easy it is to get the wrong people. They said they didn't do it. These are children. You, 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 you trick them. You coerce them into to blaming one another. You get them saying things that aren't true. And you can children. go online, people who can go online, you can actually see the actual, the actual children because they actually taped the so-called confessions of these children. And you see like Corey Wise is the one that everybody always feels so sorry for. You see him like, it reminds me when I was 12, looking at my mother laying there, you just didn't bewildered by this. Like, okay, what's going on here? And how do I get out of this? Whatever I need to say so I can go home. I just want to go home. You, you want me to say what so I can go home? Yeah. So I think those are two good ones. And, uh, I appreciate the, the time we've spent here. And I know you and I will do this again. Um, this has been good for me. I don't, I don't get an opportunity just to kind of uh, go into it like this. And I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to um, just kind of be me in this space. Cause it's important to just be me as it will be for anybody in this space. Well, I really appreciate um, your willingness to go there, to go here, to this is, it's not even ever easy to dig into um, what is normal and everyday occurrence mm -hmm. for you. And yet a world and a world of people that continue to be blind to real life experiences of being in, in a body of culture and, what the weight of that really means and the extent 
Um, we didn't even really get all into it. And so I, I know we have a lot more we could cover and we will cover more on, on future episodes. But I do want to ask, is there any other aspect in, in your reflection of your life um, that you want to just highlight in terms of helping um, illuminate what the well-meaning white person does, says, um, or communicates um, that by saying it out loud, perhaps would allow us to to really um, see this as a as a real life character, as opposed to a philosophical concept. I, the, the one thing I think we hit on it just a little bit earlier is every time I hear it's not about race, it's not about race. And so much of my existence has been about race, the, the outward, the, the, the body me that shows up in places is always mindful of that. So to say to me, it's not about race. It's not about race. It is so, uh, it, it, it just shows me that the well-meaning white person doesn't understand how much is about race. And so before a well-meaning person, well-meaning white person opens their mouth to say that again, take into consideration, please, how much really is about race. The structure, the, the, I mean, the comings and goings of people uh, in this country and in countries all around the world is defined by race. I mean, the, 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 the setup is a racial setup. So don't say it's not about race. The economy, the entertainment, it's all about education. It's all about race first, and that race is white folks. So before you say that, pause. And, and again, get curious. Ask yourself some questions. Who's running the world? And when you say, yep, you know what? It's true. White people are mostly running the world. It will, it will give you, I hope, pause to not make that statement anymore, because so much really is about race. So you heard it from him. Ulysses said it for you. If you notice the words coming up in your body and out of your mouth, but it's not about race, take pause. And my lens on that is to ask yourself a different question. Pause and ask, what if it were about race? What if it were about race and I don't yet have eyes to see it? What if it were about race and I don't yet have awareness to notice? I don't yet have the ears to hear it. Mm -hmm. So as well-meaning white folks, we've got to decondition ourselves to see what's in plain sight for a lot, a lot, a lot of people mm -hmm. that goes invisible to us because it's been meant to be invisible to us. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's really important. It's not about race, but what if it is? So pause, as you heard him say, get curious and ask yourself some different questions and sit with it. Sit with the troubling bubbling that might show up in your own interior. And that's about it for today. I want to thank you for being on our episode today. Um, I've asked 
all of our guests to share a song that really has helped them, has been inspiring for them in their own personal journey, or perhaps a song that they just want listeners to hear. And um, Ulysses, would you like to share us what your song is and why? Yeah, the song is called As, A-S. It's by Stevie Wonder. It came out on his legendary album, I think it was 77, Songs in the Key of Life. Uh, If you listen to that CD album, whatever you're listening to, uh, you'll recognize a lot of songs like Sir Duke and uh, Another Star. You'll recognize some some mainstream stuff, as is, I'd say, pretty mainstream. But there's this one line in there that I say to myself, kind of like the prayer of St. Francis in the song. Stevie says, we all know sometimes life's hates and troubles can make you wish you were born in another time and space. But you can bet your life in that and twice as double that God knew exactly where he wanted you to be placed. So make sure when you say you're in it, but not of it, you're not helping to make this place what some people sometimes call hell. Change your words into truth and then change that truth into love. Man. Man. What? Again, this is Ulysses Butch Slaughter as our guest today on the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness Podcast. We are closing it out with Stevie Wonder today, folks. So listen up and here we go. folks. Well, as always, we don't share the entire song because of copyright, but you can listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness playlist, and we will be making a playlist of every song from every episode uh, for you to listen to, to recall and to revisit this episode again, because there were so many gems. Um, if you'd like to be a guest on our podcast, um, don't hesitate to reach out to me at gn at gurunishan.com. These stories are uncomfortable because we don't grow in comfort. We grow in by having the uncomfortable conversations. 
to shake up our worldview and step outside of our lens so we can see things as they are instead of as we've been taught they should be. Um, I thank you so much, Ulysses Butch Slaughter, for being with us today. And uh, thank you for sharing this podcast. Subscribe to it and um, please review it on all podcasting platforms as well. You can be in contact with me at gn at gurunishan.com or stay in touch with my work at gurunishan.com as well. Thanks again for being here and we'll talk to you again soon.